Hi, Mark. Hi, Tony. Uh, the last of four talks uh, on or discussions on faith, hope, and love as ways of knowing as uh, rather than as moral categories, and uh, probably uh, ways of knowing that um, I think open up uh, promising new doorways for uh, discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple? Um, and I've certainly found it um, uh, pro provocative. Uh, I think uh, that these categories give us uh, the beginning of a new language or discourse. I mean, if I think practically about faith, hope and love, that's one practical way uh, it'll work. Um, the language of faith, the language of hope and the language of love. Uh, anyway, um, our last lecture is a little bit of a exploration. Um, it's just a so what. Uh, so how might this work in practice? And I think um, you have made the point um, throughout these talks that these are not just religious terms. Um, uh, these are terms that are very, uh, want to colonise the whole of life. And I'm sure if we had time, uh, you would uh, be well able to say how this language began to change the world, um, the Western world. I mean, I've just been reading um, part of a book which you may or may not know, I presume you do, Inventing the Individual by Larry Seedentop. No, I don't. Uh, the Origins of Western Liberalism. And um, anyway, um, it's very much, I don't think the man's a believer, but it's very, very much your, your the, the, what you and Edwin have advocated. Um, you know, for instance, his fourth chapter is called The World Turned Upside Down, Paul. Right. So uh, um, I'm, the, the, what I'd like us to do is just to discuss examples of how this could work. Um, I would like to begin with the so-called secular world. In other words, these terms aren't religious terms. They're actually terms that work in science, in business, in, in life. Um, and I'm doing that, you know, partly because uh, I am really uh, intrigued, as you know, by Bonhoeffer's uh, letters from prison. Yep. where he was searching for a religion, religionless Christianity and um, a Christ who was the Lord of life. Um, not, uh, I'm paraphrasing it, but I think what he was meaning is a lordship that didn't just evidence itself in the problem-solving task of getting rid of sin, but which arguably is a um, at the at the edges task. I mean, um, people would be traditional evangelical or, or traditional Christians might be uh, offended by that. But that's what he said. Um, he was trying to chart out this area of just Monday to Friday, Monday to Saturday, Sunday, just all of life. How is he Lord of all of life? So. Um, I think faith, hope, and love give give us um, a bit of an avenue into that. So I don't know whether you have had any thoughts of examples of the way faith, hope, and love um, actually are elements of truth finding, 
um, in all of life. Um, whether you want to kick off with some examples. Yeah, look, uh, a couple of things I'd say up front is that um, when I think of my own practice, and you know, and like like you, we've spent a lot of our lives um, in professional contexts trying to help people understand um, their own context and their own challenges, and and always in really big picture terms. Um, and you know, it's been our lot to to grapple with you know big social technical systems, you know major systems, you know the the way taxation is structured <laughs> in a country, um, the way um, you know a mining group handles uh, health and safety across all of its operations, and um, and all kinds of things like that. And it's not that um, you know I find myself all the time saying, what does faith mean here? What does hope mean here? What does love mean here? I think. In, in practice, what it's meant for me is, um, is, is a kind of a disposition that probably expresses itself in a couple, of, a couple of things really strongly that are just always there working for me. When I drill into them, I go, yeah, of course, that's what faith, hope and love looks like. So one of those, two big ones, I think, that go hand in hand for me, one is, is a deep regard for the other. Um, and a sense that uh, in a little phrase that uh, that a, a client and who became a dear friend of mine used to say, um, always think about the on behalf of, you know, in everything you do, there is an on behalf of. Um, and um, I remember him telling me in one particular occasion, he was the uh, deputy director general of one of the big education uh, departments here in Australia. And um, uh, he was talking about being in an executive group where they're about to bring some big IT uh, change across the whole organization. And, um, and he was a guy just, you know, he loved the kids. He was a, he was the state's youngest ever principal and all that kind of stuff. And had done lots of amazing things. And, um, <clears throat> and he just drilled these guys by saying, look, I know it's a, it's a long bow to draw. I don't want to be facile about it, but ultimately introducing this system how is it ultimately on behalf of the children? You know, um, and again, he said, I don't want to be facile, but show me how this would change life for a principal such that the principal was able to change life for his or her staff such that it means things are possible in the classroom that might not have been possible before. How is it ultimately on behalf of the kids? And it's, it's instructive that... Um, uh, he, of course, was met with this sense of incredulity of, you know, we're talking about an IT system here. What do you, what do you mean, you know? And um, as if he's being naive, you know, in the quest, where he just kept pushing back and saying, no, um, if this is ultimately to change the way that we engage with this whole system, remember that the system exists on behalf of the children, not on behalf of us. And it's this, it's this deep sense of at any given point saying, what is the point of, of what I'm involved in here? And what, what is the point of our labors, of our industry? Uh, and it's, you know, and the, the best of us shines when we think of, of uh, the other, you know, that we're here on behalf of the other. But the thing that goes hand in hand with this for me is curiosity. Um, it's a curiosity in the other uh, person, but it's also a curiosity more broadly in, in the world so that, you know, you and I know and the work that we did, we'd find ourselves both curious about the people and, and wanting to know them as other than client, 
wanting to know them as as you know living breathing human beings with whom you can you can have a drink you know have a meal and and go for a walk uh but also curious about the worlds in, in which they operated and and for you and i always a sense that the uh, particularly the bureaucratic explanations or the political explanations of their of their worlds and their context were never satisfying to us and we always had the sense that <clears throat> there is there is more uh, to their worlds and and that that more which kind of lurks in the very human places that uh, has the potential to bring insight that could change the whole if, if only somebody would pay attention to it yeah. um, and and my sense is that that's for me that that emerges out of this deep sense of faith hope and love this sense that wherever I go you know I stand on the shoulders of other people um, there's a there's a desire whereas a need for faithfulness which is where truth comes into it a faithfulness in the way that we represent a faithfulness in the way that we we um, uh, listen to story um, story of course is is huge in all of this I think that um, uh, and so is is the asking of questions I, I think that um, faith hope and love um, for me dispose me uh, uh, not to being disinterested in answers, obviously you want answers, but fundamentally to valuing the question almost uh, more than the answer, because the question, the asking of great questions means that I'm actually going to engage. Yes. You know? Yeah. So yeah. I think that's the way it's kind of translated for me. And, and as you and I have found, and we, you know, even to this day, and now I'm, I'm involved in something at the moment, working with one of the big health systems out here. It's only a very small involvement, but, but I just see over and over again, this kind of truncated, reduced way of looking at the world, um, which is fundamentally self-serving, even from really, you know, they're good people. I don't mean to critique the people, but they've just inherited these ways of thinking that just keep cutting the, cutting the corners, cutting the rough edges off everything. Whereas our disposition um, is to say, you know, I want, I want to inquire. There are stories here that I want to be faithful to. I want to understand them, you know. Um, I have the sense that um, uh, satisfying the requirements of a system is, is never enough, not only to just keep going and, and act well, but in fact, it never gives you enough insight, never gives you enough uh, understanding of how the world really is. And um, uh, whereas, you know, there has to be a sense of hope um, that this, this is on, on behalf of, of people such that their experiences, such that their lives can be different. Um, and of course, you know, as, as Paul says, love is the greatest of all. And it, it's if love, it's that fundamental disposition towards um, the other that makes, uh, makes that whole thing work. And again, it's not, you could look at that and say, well, aren't they just kind of um, uh, virtues in the sense of, um, you know, if I really reduce it, kind of ways of being nice. Whereas I would say, no, they're fundamentally their ways of inquiry, their ways of actually engaging. Um, yeah. I think uh, that, you know, when you were talking um, the whole time, I was thinking the big word over this is love. Yeah. A a and um, that uh, we have tended um, to objectify reality um, as if it's out there and it's a construct 
Um, it's a mechanical construct. Um, and so, for instance, the traditional way of doing strategy would be through spreadsheets, um, uh, operating expenses, you, you know, increasing revenues, very objectified, um, yeah. arm's length. And the discourse of um, organisational life is, is very, very dispassionate and, and, and um, um, at arm's length. You know, it's, it's quite unquote factual. Whereas what you're talking about is a paradigm shift, um, not just in attitude, but in saying, no, no, um, every human system has a fabric of love in it, if it's a good one. Yeah. And you take the fabric of love out of it, and it's, not, it's, it's actually some kind of reduction of reality. Yeah. Um, so your headmaster who said on behalf, it's sorry, it's not an IT system, that's actually part of a fabric of reality that's got to be have love wrapped around about tell me about the love now he didn't use those words yeah that's right but that's what he meant and then i think um the idea of it's a love for others i also feel it's a love for god yeah um because it's it's almost like a reverence before um gift um, um that you know, if I'm a teacher, as he's been a teacher, um, he would have a reverence for this gift of learning. This yeah. he would see that as a wondrous thing. Um, yeah. Now, um, um, the and the interesting thing about this man, um, who I, you know, I don't know, is that there's a sort of a instinct in amongst. Uh, us Christians, it's, it's, it's a nasty little thing to ask, was this man a Christian or not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm if you're not going to answer the question. I don't answer the question, because <laughs> I know I, I, I've got to say, it, it, is, it, is a, it, it is a sort of a tribal little um, inside, outside. Um, whereas, and I think, I think what I'm about to say will help people, um, we're not talking about Christians, we're talking about the gospel, yeah. and which is a wide truth um, shared by common grace with all. Um, and so it's a discourse that that all that we uh, everybody has some access to. And a lot of people who don't yet name the name of Christ have access to. I think the difference we have is being able to name it and structure it and thus almost reinforce it in people. Um, such as your client. So I think that love, um, another way of putting it would be, you know, that he, he put human beings at the centre of the system. Yeah. Um, then I think your point about curiosity, uh, again, I think um, you put a spin on that, which is a love spin. Um, the asking of questions is uh, unlocks uh, great ideas, but... Um, You've talked about a particular way of asking questions. Uh, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I, I like Socrates in many ways, but I don't think he necessarily loved people on the other end. I thought it was a surgical. <laughs> uh, we only um, we only know Socrates through Plato's eyes, obviously. But in my sense, whenever I read the dialogues, it's like you know, he it's not really an open ended. Uh, uh, questioning, he knows where he wants to get this person. In fact, he's he's skillfully maneuvering this person into a corner. 
he's very uh, that, that, that's his kind of questioning and uh and that's not the kind of questioning that um that you, you and I have, have spent our lives trying to understand well, and figure out how to practice. This, this question comes out of a love for people. I really, I really respect you. I respect who you are. I don't know who you are. I'm curious, and and that opens things up. And 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 and, and, a, and a, there's a the twin of that is a sense of humility. Is that no matter who you are, um, I can learn from you. Mm. You know, which is a which is fundamentally an, an openness to life. You know, that's why I always say that humility is the prerequisite of learning. You know, it's a prerequisite of knowledge, and it's it, it's a twin with the idea of faith, hope, and love. It's a it's a standing there and saying, "I didn't make the world." You know, I'm not the master of the world. I'm not the one holding all knowledge together and making it work. Isn't that wonderful? That means I'm I'm open to learn. You know, and and I can learn from anywhere and from anyone. Um, and it, and it means also then that, you know, whenever you walk into a context, you go, um, look, I respect those who are going to explain to me how this thing actually works, but I know there's always more than what they can see and always more than what I can see. Yes. And, and, and that's why, you know, the, 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 the instinct to go, I want to go and find the stories. I want to go and find the people um, because, uh, you know, as you, as you listen to their experiences, you start to get a larger sense, uh, even even in the most uh, kind of um, you know down home folky anecdotal stuff. You know that the seemingly you hear from people, as you and I have experienced many times, working on trying to bring about a, a shift in the experience people have within a system. Is you hear these stories, um, and uh, as long as you're open to them, as long as you're open to valuing the person. Uh, they always yield insight, every single one of them. That is to go back to, the, to the, the big word, knowledge. They help you to know in a way that you would never have known without it. Yes. And um, uh, in, in my latter few years of consulting, we um, had a, lot, a fair amount to do with Japan. Yeah. And uh, helped some Japanese consultants uh, um, thinking what we call a second roadway. Uh, they, they identified that as human centeredness. Yeah. And they identified that as a massive challenge to the traditional Japanese management culture, um, putting human beings and reality at the center of things. Uh, but, but because they were trying to understand the methodologies that I was using, they, they brought a fresh light to them. Yeah. Uh, and um, one of the things that I began to realize, as you and I know, when we had what we call a strategic conversation and we might have 10 or 12 executives in a room, uh, we would uh, interview everybody beforehand. And those interviews were inv invariably got personal. Yeah. Now they, they invariably got personal. People, people start to talk out of some degree of passion. And the flip side of passion can often be anger because they're irritated um, by bureaucracy. They're irritated by a sense of being um, constrained from, from, from the possibilities of what the organization could do. And, and when, that, when you got to that passion, you're getting, in my word, to love. Now it's a different kind of love. It's, I'm, not, I'm talking now not so much about a love for people, but a love for mission. You know, the best of people loved the organization for its mission. 
And, and for instance, if it was an engineering company, uh, they loved engineering and they loved what would be possible in that. Um, when you found that, um, you began to get, that was the material out of which you could build a real strategy. Um, and as you know, in the, so in, that, uh, in, in our model of the ABCD model, you know, B is the vision part. And the vision, when um, a lot of consultants talk about vision, they objectify this as increasing revenue by 15% or some kind of numerical goal. It leaves everybody cold. The people, uh, the, the great the great strategic conversations, the great strategies, the great vision. That the, the, I've often thought the best word to put over the B space, which is vision, is love. That what do you love? Tell yeah. me what you would really love. And people do not need who pe pe people who are any good do not need very much provocation to answer that question. They they might yeah. need some structure to explore it. Um, and I can remember that I was, for instance, doing a strategic conversation in New York with with a, uh, one of the world's largest banks. I won't mention who they are. Um, and this group, uh, th their situation was that um, over the last five years, they had, uh, under a previous leader, pretty well re rescued from bankruptcy, you know, this division. And um, so in a way, they were, you know, sitting on um, triumph, you know, and the new leader's question was, well, why would we want to do anything different? Have you got any passion left in you? And now the, the conversation didn't break open by any kind of objectified facts, objectified analysis, because any objectification of facts would have said to these people, just keep going. But the question that broke it open was, if this is all you did, would you be disappointed? What would you really, what would you love to actually be part of over the next five years? And that was what broke open the imagination. And, and, and so I think now, you know, what, what we're saying here is that loving things, loving people, loving things is a critical asset. It's not some kind of icing on the cake no. to, to where the heart of truth finding is factual and you put a kind of a social icing on the cake to make everybody happy. It's not like that at all. The love is drives the inquiry yeah. and the love is an, in, an integral part of the cognitive process of shaping possibilities. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think um, yeah, the B in, in uh, you know, ABCD, the, you know, where, where do we wish to be um, is uh, the whole manner in which, um, you know, we, in fact, I was just thinking we, we could quite easily go from, go through the four, places and talk about each of those in terms of faith hope and love um in as you know as you, you know it's it's your your brilliance that came up with this model and and you know your thesis that explored it all but you know drawing on aristotle's insight they are places of thought they are topoi from which we get our word both topic and topos as in and topography um and um and they require a different kind of mode uh, of, of inquiry and yet interestingly um, faith hope and love you could write those across all those quite different modes of inquiry they are still manifestations of, of um, faith hope and love um, so if I do that really quickly off the cuff if you think in terms of the exploration of current reality um, you know I've, I've often liked to think of it as what we are after is insight not not a list of problems you know and we've all seen 
you know, groups that go away for, you know, their strategy retreat or whatever it is, and they, they go into small groups and they get the butcher's paper things all around the walls. And it's a list of, of every problem they can think of. And if you ask anybody, you know, um, what did last year's butcher's paper sheets look like and the year before and the year before, and anyone who's been there long enough will say, well, basically they're the same. And likewise, when we come to talk about what we prefer, um, we can only talk about B as the absence of A. You know, if you can solve all today's problems, well, Nirvana, you know, that's a better world. And yet something in you cringes at that point, you know. And, and what I've, um, you know, long said to people is, look, we're not after a list of problems. We're after genuine insight. What, what is it about current reality that, that um, makes you either somewhere between feeling ashamed or a sense of, a sense of loss, a, a sense of falling short, and at the same time, what is there that arouses in you desire? You know, that we're better than this. You know, our own stories tell us, tell us a lot of great things, but we've never quite known what to do with it, you know? Um, so we're, we're trying to, uh, you know, draw that out of people, um, which is, in a sense, is to say, what, what do you believe, you know? Um, and uh, and wh where, is, where is hope crushed, you know? Um, where is the, the manner in which we are, we are being? Where, do, where does it fall short of, of the, the love? Again, you know, you and I don't use those actual words when we're working with people, but, but I'm, I'm saying that's where it comes from. Um, where, is the, where is the love for customer, for client, for patient, for community, for whatever group it is, that um, uh, there's a sense of, you know, maybe shame is too strong a word, but a sense of we fall short of what it is we long to be able to provide. Uh, that, that's a completely different way of diagnosing current reality than problems. Absolutely. Because yeah. you're, you're actually not looking at problems, you're looking at frustrated purpose. You know, yeah. where is your love frustrated? Um, and um, totally different discourse, whilst they are confessing in that discourse issues that are frustrating and challenging, there's also the... Um, this early energy towards possibilities. Yeah. It's why you and I have always been drawn towards the cynic as well mm -hmm. uh, and, in, in organisations. And, and, you know, we've seen so many uh, managers basically steering us away from the cynic. You know, don't, we don't want them involved in the group and whatever else. And yet our sense is always that, that cynicism, I know, you know, it, it can be very, very black and very ugly, but, but, but often... Uh, there's a kind of sense of repressed love, you know, of a person who, who desires for something far, far better, but does not know how to li live with the frustration yeah. uh, surrounding that. And so they turn inward and bitter. But, you know, as, as we've experienced so many times, you sit with a person like this long enough for them to realize that they, you are not sitting in judgment on them, that you're well, genuinely curious in who they are as a, as a person. Well, and I you start to hear this other stuff. As you say that, I mean, I, I have one shining example um, that we did in one of, uh, which was a ma the major um, government-owned um, road insurance agency in one of the big regions in Australia. So really, really um, multi-billion-dollar government-funded um, um, insurance company for accident claims. Anyway, we were warned about this guy who'd yeah. been there like 25 years and knew the place like the back of his hand and hated consultants and um, 
and, and, and they were very frightened to have a strategic conversation with 25 people in the room if he was there too, because he yeah. would just throw hand grenades. Well, lo and behold, of course, this is the guy who had the greatest love for the organization and the greatest anger. Yeah. And because the process was being framed in these terms of, well, what do you love? What would you love to do? He absolutely took to it like a duck to water um, because he could tell his story. He could, he could, he could um, not just bitch about all the irritations, but talk about what's possible. Um, and in the terminology we're using, he was able to tell the truth, quote unquote, because he was able to have the discourse of what you love, what you believe in, yeah. in this organisation. Um, and um, so... Uh, this, you know, when I did the, um, the TED talk on grounded questions in Geneva, whenever it was, 2014 or something, um, you know, what I was trying to get at in that was that... You know, I've seen a way of asking questions that just, it just closes everything down. It sounds all very grown up and sophisticated. Like, for example, asking, you know, what is best practice culture? You know, and I, and I tell the story in the TED talk, or I tell a few stories, or one of them about, you know, one of, one of my clients who was the head of a huge infrastructure group, and they acquired some other groups. Um, and... Um, you know, he had a sense of, you know, we need to find some cohesion here in how people are going to work. And inevitably, it had the consultants come in. And so they start talking in terms of what's best practice culture, you know, and which derives from some article somewhere and, and uh, or something someone did in Scandinavia, you know, and, uh, uh, and instead, I asked him the question, you know, uh, you know, said, you know, in, indulge me, you know, who of whom are you proud? And, you know, he was initially like, would you please stay on track here, Mark? You know, what are you, what are you asking me such a stupid question for? And I said, no, just indulge me. Of, of whom are you proud? And, of course, the only way to answer that is to tell a story. And he told this great story about um, a group of people. Um, I think from memory they were actually um, building railways. And it was, it was, you know, men and women down at the, at the rail face, you know, um, doing this stuff. And he loved them, you know, and uh, loved what they did and... And I said, you know, would you like to see more people working like that? He said, well, of course, that's the whole point of the exercise. And I said, is there another story? And, you know, and he tells me 10 or 12 stories and they're all across the organisation and they're wonderful stories. And you can just hear his pride, which, uh, AKA his love, you know, for these people and what they do. And so I said to him, you know, look at these slides. The, the consultants had produced these 50-odd PowerPoint slides, you know, with all the usual stuff, mission, visions, values, blah, blah, blah. And I said to him, you know, do these slides look like the people in the stories you just told me or vice versa Do the people in the stories, the way in which they, they think and they act and they talk with each other and the way they go about their work, the way they, they um, you know, what value means to them, does it actually look anything like what you've got in these slides? And of course, the answer was no. And um, so I said, well, I think you need to be, you know, think seriously about what you're about to do to people because you're about to go out to people in effect and say, um, well, that's all very well, all these lovely things and these stories, but we want you all to talk like this and look like this. And, and of course, it's an aberration. And, and, uh, and I said to him, you know, you'll get one of two responses. The people who are robust in themselves, who are confident, they will, you know, sit through your 50 PowerPoint slide presentation when it finally gets cascaded down to them 
and and they'll basically say, you know, point three on slide seventeen. That we like that. That's really helpful. Thank you. We'll we'll take that and we'll add it to what we do. The rest of it, we really don't know what to do with any of that, and so we'll just ignore it. You know, and um, uh, and according to those who run the process, of course, that's a terrible thing. You know, but in reality, it will actually lead them to continue to do the very thing for which they are so highly regarded. Uh, whereas people who lack that that sort of robustness and a sense of confidence in who they are, um, they, they will feel like, oh, we have to do everything that's in these slides. And as they do that, they actually start to lose what it is that's actually precious to them. And you know, and you and I have seen this so many times with school teachers, for example, who are in you know tough circumstances, and um, and someone comes out with the next, you know, uh, 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 professional development program, and and people go away saying, "Oh my goodness, I've got to do this and this and this and this as well," rather than be able to stand back and go, "Wait a minute, fundamentally, I'm here for the children, you know, and and what is it that I've just heard that helps me see the children with fresh eyes? What is it that helps me see the craft with fresh eyes?" Um, and, and that's why, you know, I tell the story at the end of the talk about the school that uh, I worked with. It was really, really tough. And instead of asking, you know, what's wrong? How do we fix it? Which is the questions that we've been hardwired into us, which just eradicate any conversation that has a skerrick of faith, hope and love about it. Instead, we ask the question, you know, why did you become a teacher? Mm. And, and, and they tell these wonderful, wonderful stories, including the teachers that people had a pretty poor opinion of. Uh, and what happens then is a different kind of dialogue started to happen between these teachers, you know, and you and I know one little session like that's not going to change everything. But fundamentally, it's that I think what we bring to people so deeply embedded in faith, hope and love is a gift to people in these contexts where, you know, they've been taught that to be grown up and professional and sophisticated is in fact to have a really truncated view of life and of each other. Well, um, the, look, the practicality of, uh, of these um, intangibles, these ways of looking at the world um, uh, is something that I think very unusual. I mean, we, we've had the privilege of seeing this work in practice. As you were talking, I was thinking about one of the most intractable um, strategic conversations I had to manage. Um, years ago with a major government department. And uh, what had happened was that that department had, it was an industrial relations problem, massive industrial relations problem. Um, and the every five years, the, the executives had to come out with a new um, salary offers. They came out with new salary offers. They were, they were by any measure generous but there was a vote against, they were voted down by the staff. And they were voted down by the staff um, really as a uh, opportunity to put, um, yeah, uh, to put a vote of no confidence in them, just, just, just to complain. Um, yeah. So this then uh, led the entire executive of the organization for six months to have to reorganize themselves and go out and try to, um, win over the staff. It was a terrible distraction and it was an intractable, wicked problem. Yeah. Um, the guy who was in charge of the project came to me and said, could we have a, could we run a strategic conversation about it? And we did, and we got in. Now, what he then did was 
he said, and I'm going to get in the antagonists, not just the protagonists. Yeah. Uh, so senior executive, but he invited the two major unions to come. Now, th this was seen to be incredibly risky, yeah. <laughs> but he, he, he was a risk taker. So in the room, we had these people. So the question is, how are we going to get these warring factions together? And it was a very, very, um, uh, it was a really, really um, tangible problem with intangible causes. Yeah. Look, the breakthrough was um, we made the, 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 the vision. Um, we had to get some sort of sense of hope. What, what are we all hoping for? What's our, what's our goal? Yeah. And um, at a low level, their goals were adversarial. Yeah, you know, it's management versus uh, versus staff, um, and and so on. But what we did, which was the breakthrough, was we made the goal uh, our children, who are the workers of the future, mm. and what kind of workplace do we all want to craft for the next generation of workers who we could imagine as our children? Yeah. That changed everything. That, that, that changed everything. And and the project, the process became coherent. Yeah. Um, and it, it effectively was the breakthrough um, and saved months of time um, because people got on the same page. Now, the only way to diagnose that is the practicality of introducing um, love into the discourse. Yeah. and creating an object of that love that's a real person that we can imagine yeah. um, and then saying how do we structure a system yeah. for that person and interestingly you know faith and hope are there as well i mean if you think in one sense what you're doing and you know and, and i've had the same sort of circumstances and like you many times you know i've asked that the adversarial groups or the or the the lower down the order groups, you know, are present within the conversations, and there's always resistance to this, you know, and this this terrible elitism uh, at work, which is not just, you know, we're superior to those people, but we know better, you know, and and we'll have better insights than the people who actually live close to it. But in a sense, to to create this picture of, um, you know, the the workforce of the future for their children. There's a there's a sense in which you're asking, what do you really believe, you know, uh, uh, underneath all this, uh, and uh, and you find this common ground, you know, uh, we 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 each see personified in children, we each see the dignity in other human beings, mm -hmm. you know, it's hard for us to see it in each other at the moment because we're on either sides of, of an issue, but when we think about children. We stand side by side and say, you know, do, do you uh, do you believe in the dignity of your children? Yes, I do. You know, and and, and I believe the same in mine. And, uh, uh, and you know, so what's the hope you have? And the hope is that they will live well. Yes. You know, and, yeah. and, and we share that. So, you know, and as you say, love is the greatest one because you know what what why why do I believe these things? Why do I have this hope? Is is this deep regard for the other? Yeah. Uh, and when you when you find that, you know, I guess the whole tone of what I'm hearing in our conversation this morning is, for a lot of people, these words sound fluffy, and and we've had this experience where, without even using the words faith, hope, and love, there are times when just 
how those animate you and I and the ways in which we've wanted to conduct the discourse and wanted to conduct the inquiry, um, uh, you know, where, where we wanted curiosity to go, where we wanted imagination to go. There are people who, who kind of react, resist this, you know, and push back, like somehow this is not sophisticated enough or professional enough or whatever else, you know, doesn't, and, and yet, you know, our instincts are that it's not going to take you to some place that is fluffy and intellectually lighter. It's actually going to take you deeper. It, it's going to, it, you're going to have to grapple with things uh, intellectually. That is in, because you're going to look at a system as a whole, not, not the parts. And that is always harder. And you're going to have to deal with genuine ambiguity and genuine complexity uh, when, you, when you do this. Uh, so, you know, you and I, we've had to ride through that moment of, oh, this all sounds a bit folky and, you know, why are you doing this to eventually get to the point of people going, oh my God, this is harder. This is harder to think through, but it's more rewarding. It is. And, um, uh, I'd like to pick up, I mean, so far, really, we've uh, talked a lot about, I think the dominant word is love, um, of the three, uh, I would like to just move to uh, another associated field of human endeavor, which is innovation. Yeah. And um, uh, modern, corpora modern corporations are uh, almost incapable of innovation because they want so much proof. Um, and so anyone with an idea or an investment case has to put forward what is, loose, what is called in organizations a business case, which is prove it. Yeah. Now, uh, by definition, if I haven't done something, I can't prove it. Yeah, please prove what does not yet exist. And I amuse myself by saying, um, if you took Apple or Amazon, one of these huge startups, and just wound the clock back and threw a business case at Steve Jobs and asked him to prove that he was going to turn Apple into a great corporation, he, he would have A, been incapable and B, been scornful. Or even that people were going to want what he was thinking about. Yeah, and so, so he had this um, irascible, relentless faith and, and, um, and that is a necessary component in innovation. And I, um, as you know, am heavily involved in a, a startup uh, company in big data and advanced analytics. Um, so it's interesting to apply faith, hope and love to our operating model, which we have. So we've created a human-centered operating model. Um, I mean, the company is not a Christian company per se, but I won't go into that. That's a bit complex. But if you look at how do you... Now, at the moment, if you were to ask me, you know, how successful the company is or will be, the answer is, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but the early investors, the very, very early investors in a company invest largely on faith yeah and um and and all of the investors uh, uh, that i've uh, encouraged uh, to invest i've said you've got to roll the dice here we we don't know if this is going to work you've got to be prepared to lose your money otherwise you can't invest yeah. um and they and the and the only thing we've got to tell you so far is a story so here's the story yeah and eventually they're, so they're investing in a story. Now, the interesting thing is this, Mark, if the, the whole idea of the story 
is to turn that story more and more into reality. And the closer to reality it gets, the more expensive it becomes to invest in the company. Yeah. So the people who put a dollar in and take $10,000 out will be the people who believed right at the beginning. Yeah. The people who put $10,000 in and got $12,000 out, there wasn't a lot of faith in it because frankly, you guys already got customers. It looks pretty good. Yep, I'm pretty certain about it. So there's this truth in investment and in innovation that the more faith, the greater the reward. Yeah. Now the faith is not uneducated um, because you know I had to tell a story and these guys are sophisticated and I didn't tell the story once. You know, could you talk to me about that bit again and what what if this you know? But it's still it's still essentially prototyping with words and. Um, um, so I've, I've looked at that and, and seen how, how faith fed by um, stories, fed by narrative, uh, faith actually drives human endeavor. Yeah. Take faith away and only have proof and we get nowhere because we can only prove what already exists. Yeah. Um, and then the other one is hope, um, which a lot of people might confuse with. Faith. I think I see hope very much as a leap of faith. It's almost like in in uh, in diagnosing human cognition, people sometimes uh, talk about deductive, inductive, and abductive yeah. reasoning. I mean, Charles Peirce, uh, a great philosopher, uh, and uh, William James would. The American experiential philosophers in the early part of the 20th century, around the, the year 1900, they were very big on abduction, which is this strange human ability to almost out of nowhere leap across time, leap across possibilities. Say, I reckon we could do this. Yeah. I reckon we could. And I can't, there's no pathway to it, but yeah. I reckon we could. Um, so you might call that spark of imagination or whatever. And of course, it becomes extremely difficult to say where on earth these ideas came from. Um, there's, a, there's definitely a, a really big God factor in, but this is this is this is fundamental to the human condition. This ability to conceptualize what does not exist, and of course, even as I'm saying that, I'm thinking of you know Abraham. You know, God called into being what didn't exist, and He called it as though it did exist, yeah. and we're made in His image. So these, uh, I've I've been utterly fascinated by the way faith and hope drive innovation in human activities. And yet, of course, a lot of our systems um, uh, make that very difficult. Absolutely. I often think when we talk about this, I often think about science and how science actually develops. And, you know, people will say, oh, you know, science is um, basically it's the so-called scientific method. Um, that is the, you know, is, is the kind of the, um, the wellspring, you know, or the driving force of how science develops. But, but of course, it, it can't. Um, all the, um, all the scientific, so-called scientific method can do is falsify. Um, it can only tell you what does not work, because no matter how many times you say something does work, you still don't know if the next time it won't work. So it's a very, very useful thing when you want to bring, uh, um, you know, a, a degree of, um, uh, precision and care over what has already been created but 
but the ideas, you know, the, the, the next thing in science never can't occur from there. It's, a, it's an act of, um, as you say, it's an act of faith. It's an act of human imagination. Uh, it's an extrapolation um, uh, that, is, that is very much along the line of what you were saying. I wonder, you know, I wonder if, I wonder if. Uh, or often, of course, it's a happenstance thing where something happens around them and they look and go, oh, my goodness, you know, I wonder then if this and this, uh, that's actually how, how science, all of science has actually progressed. Correct. And the local okay. scientific method only comes in on the back of that as saying, well, we think we now have something, uh, we think we've got a solid idea. Can you break it? Yeah, that's exactly right. And of course, Einstein was a, a tremendous advocate of the imagination. Yeah. Um, I didn't realize until recently that the whole of Gestalt psychology, um, begun by a couple of German uh, psychologists, they were mates of Einstein. Did you know that? No, and, I didn't. Uh, and he was, in a way, their prototype. Hmm. Um, and, and Gestalt, of course, without going into it now, but it, it, it clearly is a way of looking at the big picture and facilitating an act of imagination to fill gaps in the picture. Um, and there's something utterly mysterious as to why you begin to, you know, get the idea. Where do you, where, it, it, uh, it's, it's like a breeding ground for the idea. And there's something mysterious about the birth of the idea and where faith, hope and love get a lot closer to explaining cognitively what's going on. And you're right. Once the idea is there, the idea, that's when the scientific method comes in and you begin to test it and you begin to check it. And, and, and that's how the development must continue. Um, in the startup I was talking about, there's an idea. You can't stay with the idea. The idea has got to move yeah. and it moves. But once the idea is articulated, you then be, you can begin to test parts of the idea, you know, parts of the hypothesis you can be, you can begin to, begin to test it, you know, will the customers really like X? Can I actually build technology Y? But it's iterative. You've then got to go back again and start with the ideas. And so there's this iteration between what we could call um, hope, uh, imagination. Um, and of course, these, these words are all positive. You know, you don't hope, you know, hope is not gloom. Hope's always got to be, I bet we could. I bet we could be great. I bet we could do X, Y, and Z. Um, and uh, that leads the way. That leads the way. That is that is the the um, the source of the cognitive activity. So, um, well, no, look, it's been a a really powerful picture of this. I think in you know just a few years back now, in the development of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. You know, where over you know many years, um, Indigenous groups, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander groups here in Australia, um, and with our friend Dean, uh, heavily involved in all of that, uh, and Noel, uh, uh, ended up producing this remarkable statement, and um, you know, calling for uh, for recognition uh, in the constitution um, and uh, and a voice in some way, and as we saw. Um, you know, the very politicians who line up to be photographed with these people and uh, and to say the right things such that, you know, we're all very, very positive towards our Indigenous uh, uh, um, people of Australia. Um, the, moment, the moment it got down to, will you now do something with this? Um, people started to nitpick 
around, oh, well, if you're going to do that, it would have to mean this. And I don't think that would work. And, but, you know, it's just completely out of spirit with what the statement itself is, but also completely out of whack with what you and I know in this broader conversation we've been having about all innovation. Um, and that is, you know, you, you've, you've got to be able to stand back and look at it and say, you know, I would say from my, my um, beliefs is this was a, an extraordinary and beautiful statement of the heart, you know, that enshrines uh, faith, hope and love. It's not sectarian. It's not, um, to, it, it doesn't exclude. Um, and, um, and, and yet, you know, people's first response to this is to go into this bureaucratic kind of mode of thinking that, well, I've got to think about all the problems that I'll, I'll inherit now if I'm to take this seriously. Um, rather than saying, uh, look, as the, the people who, who formed the statement were saying themselves, we don't know exactly how this comes into practice, okay? That, that has still yet to be worked out. We understand that. We acknowledge that. But, but we've got to start from some kind of a, a statement, you know, some kind of, it's like, um, you know, the, the, the promise to Abraham and you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You know, you can imagine Abraham saying, well, hang on a minute. How? I'm just, I'm just not sure how you're going to do that. Where's and, the project plan? And, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and rather than going, I guess I have to live with this now and, and try and understand what on earth it would mean and understand what on earth it would require of me, what on earth it would require of you, what it would require of the manner in which we are with each other. And, and how does it lead me to know in a different way? You know, um, what do you mean all the nations of the earth will be blessed? Uh, I mean, Abraham was not alone coming from Ur, that, that every ancient culture was concerned fundamentally with itself you know, or we're taking over other, other cultures. What's this radical notion, this strange notion of blessing going to all people of all cultures and all nations? I, I, I don't know where to begin with that, you know, but is it, is it you know, does it um, come back to faith and hope? Does it, and love, does it, does it arrest you in some way? You know, does, does it, when I look at the Uluru statement, I just kind of, I just slow down and I pause and I look at it and I want to say how, what does it mean for me to regard the people who framed this and to regard their, their vision of the world, to regard their faith, their hope, their love, how, how would we act in such a way that said, we stand with you? And, 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 and faith, hope and love will always lead us to do that, I think, to stand with. Well, they will, and there's. I think this this does uh, shine a light on the particular um, advantage the gospel gives um, to somebody in the situation, um, because what you've, you know, I, I, I keep thinking as you're talking as to what Paul said, be able to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Yeah, we of all people have a reason. You see, the the problem with hope. Uh, um, in particular, is it's absolutely often irrational. Mm. Um, I, I mean, I've often seen idealism disappointed. Yeah. Um, things are harder than you thought. And the, the question of perseverance comes in. I'm like, how can I keep on hoping? How can I keep on being an optimist? And how can I keep on being an idealist? The only answer can be 
uh, which we can we can have in our hearts and give is it's because God is that what that's just what you've said that as you talked about Abraham and God saying to Abraham in you will all nations of the earth be blessed that was a vast abductive leap uh, way beyond Abraham's ability to comprehend in his life now that doesn't mean he didn't draw down on it he drew down on it presumably as did the Jews as did the Christians but what we know as we read the narrative is the God's hope uh, clarified, expanded uh, as the as the generations went through, yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, culminating in Christ, culminating and and going beyond Christ, uh, um, or not so much beyond Christ as beyond the earliest. Um, apprehensions of Christ by the disciples their their apprehension of hope grew and grew and grew yeah and and so we're not we're not making hope up out of our own um, resources we're actually you know uh, following in the footsteps of God we're chasing God yeah. when we talk about yeah. about hope and and we can we can really declare that <sighs> <laughs> I um uh uh, I know you've got to go. I wanted to finish with a story yeah. because um, we've talked a lot about um, the way faith, hope, and love uh, give a discourse in big systems. Um, and uh, it's a way of, I think, saying, wow, um, uh, Jesus uh, is Lord of all of life. Um, uh but I think that I just like to finish with a little story, which takes us right back to the personal level. Um, uh, I've often thought how language um, creates realities or breaks down realities. Yeah. And um, soon after we began this uh, faith, hope, and love series, uh, I had the occasion to um, talk to. A person, a woman, um, uh, who I didn't know that well, um, friend of one of our children, very fine person um, who has been abandoned by her husband, and it's it's it was not a, not a nice situation. Um, and although this, by any objective, by any objective assessment, you would have to say. This woman was more capable. She's, you know, just a very capable person, and I think more, much more capable than her husband. Nonetheless, within the discourse, he was very successfully trash talking her, mm. um, and uh, she was uh, she couldn't get it because she was vulnerable to some degree of pessimism, and and um, because she was having to hold down a job and raise the kids, and 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 it was corroding her. His language was corroding her. So I spoke to her uh, for a variety of reasons um, that I won't go into, but it was a long telephone conversation where I explicitly used the faith, hope, and love. I knew what I was doing. Mm. And I said, well, look, uh, can I guess what you're feeling when he says X, Y, and Z? You're starting to doubt yourself, aren't you? You're starting to implicate yourself aren't you you're starting to say well if he's so bad why did i choose him in the first place and i i tracked down the pessimism in her yeah 
And I then, and, and when he says X, Y, and Z, you know, you're whatever, angry, you're disorganized. I said, um, I, 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 I declared that was a lie. I said, that is a deceit, right? Um, you are a wonderful person. And, you know, you are a person who um, really cares for others. And, and I, all, all I could say was I spoke the language of hope over her and the language of love because I in, very clearly had in my mind what you'd said, if I speak without love, there, even if the facts were correct, even yeah. if it was factually correct that on day X, you were 10 minutes late to pick the kids up, even if that's factually correct, but I'm saying that to tear you down, I am telling a lie. Yeah. I am the voice of deceit, which we know in the Bible is the language of Satan. He's called the slanderer. I think that's yeah. how it translates him, the accuser and the slanderer. And um, I can even take what is quote unquote factually true. You were 10 minutes late for an appointment yeah. or whatever. Um, but I'm lying because there's no faith, there's no hope and there's no love. And so out of that resource of the language of faith, hope and love, um, I spoke to her and, 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 and I know it was, I needed a very, very strong coordinate to withstand his lies. And uh, it was very effective in, in, in helping her. And I think that we need to, you know, keep looking at ourselves for that language, finding that language in ourselves in to declare over people, including children, family, friends, and situations. Um, that uh, it, you know, uh, the language of faith, the language of hope, and the language of love. Well, Mark, um, great, Tony. It has been great, and I really appreciate uh, the way you think about this. I think, uh, and I think a lot of other people do. I've got some very good feedback from this, and um, uh, you know, perhaps we might write it up one day. But you know, then again, perhaps we won't. <laughs> okay good to be with you thank you bye-bye see you bye